Well, this is the last week of our On the Road series. And in our series, if you're new this weekend, we've been talking about different ways that God develops our confidence and our trust in Him. Because we're learning that as our trust grows, just like in our earthly relationships, our relationship with God grows. As our trust in God deepens, our relationship deepens. And I hope that the series has been beneficial to you. i got to be honest with you. Of all the messages and all the series that I've ever gone through, this one has probably impacted me more in a positive way than anything else I've ever talked about. By the way, just so you know, every weekend I'm pretty much preaching to myself. You're free to join in if you'd like to. But there's just some things that have been going on in my life where I had to realize, wow, I, I don't have the trust in God that I thought I have. And this is every week preparing and getting ready. It's really, really worked in my heart. I want to wrap up the series this weekend by just asking you one simple question. The question is this, what would your life look like if you had absolute confidence and trust in God? Think about that. What would it look like if you totally 100% trusted God with your life. I'm telling you, the answer to that question has the power to change every area of your life. Because, you know, if you have absolute confidence and trust in your life, in God, if you have that in your life, see, when the bottom begins to drop out, you don't start to unravel. If you have absolute confidence and trust in God, when life throws you a curve, you don't overreact. When you get a bad call from the doctor's office, you still have absolute confidence and trust in God. When your kid goes AWOL, you still have absolute confidence and trust in God. When you get that notice that you're no longer employed, you still have that absolute confidence and trust in God. I'm telling you, if you have absolute confidence and trust in God, it will impact how you interpret every aspect of your life, whether it's good or bad. Now, we're going to see that this weekend in the story of Joseph. It's a great story. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Maybe you're not. But what's interesting about the story is this. No matter how bad your life has been, maybe no matter how bad your life is this weekend, you're going to see that Joseph's was a lot worse. And no matter how great your life may be one day, you're going to see that Joseph's life was a lot better. But regardless of where he was on that spectrum in his life, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation he found himself in, whether it was really, really bad or whether it was really, really good, he just responded to that situation the way anyone would respond if they had absolute confidence and trust in God. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to Genesis chapter 42. Just kind of hang on there. If you don't know the story, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview. Hopefully, you'll go home and read the story on your own. But in our story, understand that Joseph went from being adored, pampered, protected by his father to being sold into slavery by his angry and jealous brothers. He was then relocated 500 miles to Egypt where he was sold as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. And while he's working in Potiphar's household as a slave, there's this little phrase that appears in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. It says this, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, to which we respond, no, 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 Mike, the Lord wasn't with Joseph. Because if the Lord had been with Joseph, he would be home with his dad. He would be home with his family. He would be home sleeping in his own bed. He would be wearing that beautiful coat of many colors. Because when God is with you, Mike, bad things don't happen, right? Well, evidently they do. Because we read in Genesis 39 that Joseph, who had done absolutely nothing, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's household, did nothing to deserve it, but we read that God was with him. But it's interesting, when Joseph found himself in that situation, when he went from being daddy's pet, pet, daddy's favorite, to being a slave in Potiphar's household, do you know how he responded? He just responded the way anybody responds who has absolute confidence and trust in God. Doesn't panic doesn't overreact, 
doesn't take on the role of a victim. And then to make matters worse, <laughs> while he's a slave, uh, Mrs. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, she gets the hots for Joseph, and she hits on him one day, and he flees from it. And so she falsely accuses him of rape. He ends up in prison. For all he knows, he's going to spend the rest of his life in that dungeon. But even in that situation, again, we find Joseph responding the way anybody would respond who had absolute confidence and trust in God, that God was in control of his life. Finally, two years later, after being in prison, he finally gets a break. He gets the opportunity to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And he goes into Pharaoh and he says, according to the dream, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of prosperity. You're going to have seven years of plenty here in Egypt. But then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So, so, so Pharaoh, this is what I recommend. I recommend over the next seven years where there's a lot of grain, you store up all the grain you can. And then you're going to be set to handle the seven years of famine. And Potiphar, he is so grateful that he puts Joseph in charge of storing up all the grain in that seven-year period of prosperity. And just as Joseph predicted, sure enough, the famine hit, and it was severe. And Joseph, if you've read the story, he becomes the hero, and he saves the nation of Israel because he has stored up grain in all of these cities all throughout the nation. And again, Pharaoh, he is so grateful. This time, he actually promotes Joseph to be the prime minister of Egypt. That means Joseph has gone from being daddy's favorite to being sold into slavery, now becoming the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation on the planet. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 41, verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. He put a gold chain around his neck. I mean, he, he's helping Joseph accessorize. That's what's going on here, right? He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Well, before long, word gets out to the surrounding nations that while they're starving to death, there's plenty of food over in Egypt. That's where I want us to pick up the story. If you turn to Genesis chapter 42, look at verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses on the screen. Genesis 42 verse 1, when Jacob, and that's Joseph's dad, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? By the way, doesn't that sound like a dad? Why are you standing there with your face hanging out, right? I have heard that there was grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. By the way, just so you know, Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery. Now he's 40. That means that 23 years later, after selling, these 10 brothers sold their brother into slavery. They're on, they're on their way down to Egypt to get grain. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. And you can kind of see where this is going, right? So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. And he spoke harshly to them, where do you come from, he asked. Now, you got to understand, at this moment in a story, Joseph has got a decision to make. Because right now, he's got them exactly where he wants them. There's an old saying, you've heard it, what goes around, comes around. Things have now come full circle for Joseph. And suddenly these guys who mistreated him, suddenly these guys who framed his death, took his coat of many colors, covered it up with animal blood, took it back to dad and said, Joseph is dead. These guys who sold him into slavery, now they are at his mercy and they have they, and he has what they need. 
By the way, let me tell you why this is applicable for all of us. The way life works, and I don't know why it works this way, but it just works this way. The way life works, eventually, the people who've hurt you, they will need you. Life just works that way. And just like with Joseph, when it comes around for you, and all of a sudden, you have the power. See, just like Joseph, you're going to have a decision to make. It may be with your siblings. You know, maybe you're one of several kids, and, and you were one, you got, you got the hand-me-downs, you were mistreated, maybe you were abused, but unlike your siblings, <laughs> you married up, right? And financially, things have gone really, really well for you, them maybe not so much, and now they have a need, and they mistreated you early on in life, and now they have the nerve to come to you for help, and all of a sudden, you have the power. Maybe it's an ex-spouse after a bitter divorce. They had the money, and they lawyered up, and they got the house, and they got the kids, and they got the nice cars, and they got the country club membership, and they got the 401K, and you got nothing. But you know, things have a way of changing, right? And now your ex needs your help, and you've got the power. Or maybe it was a parent. Maybe they were an absentee parent. Or maybe they were a parent that deserted you early on in life. And because of that, they missed all your birthdays. They missed all your recitals. They missed all your games. They missed your graduations. But maybe they didn't prepare for retirement. And now they're at the stage of life where they have fallen on hard times. And they've come to you for help. And you're like, are you, are you kidding me, right? I mean, it could be a million different ways where you were the victim. Where you were mistreated. But now things have come full circle, and now you're in charge, and now you're in the position of power. And there's something inside of you, just like is inside of all of us, that wants somebody to pay for what was done to you. I'm telling you, it happens to all of us eventually. It always comes back around. And in that moment, I'm, just like Joseph, you're going to have a decision to make. What will you do when the tables are turned? If, here's the big question, if if you have absolute confidence and trust in God. Well, look what Joseph did, verse 9. You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. And, I, and he throws them in the prison. I think he's just trying to buy some time. I think he's shocked through this whole turn of events. Three days later, he pulls them out of prison. He says, I'm convinced you're still spies. And they're like, no, 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 we are not spies. We're just an average family. We have a dad back home. His name is Jacob. We have four moms, you know. Right? We have another brother named Benjamin. He's back home with dad. And the minute that Joseph heard Benjamin, oh, his heart skipped a beat because Benjamin's his blood brother. And there's a special place in his heart for Benjamin. And I guarantee you, he began to think, how is Benjamin? Did these guys, did they do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to me? So Joseph says, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You go home and get this Benjamin. And you bring him back here so I can see him, and that will prove to me that you're not spies. And to make sure that you come back, I'm going to keep one of you as a security deposit. So he picks Simeon, one of the brothers, and he throws him back in prison. The rest of the brothers head home, minus Simeon. They finally get home. Dad comes out to greet them, and he's like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Weren't there ten of you? See, that happens when you have multiple wives with multiple children, right? You can lose count, right? Yeah, there were 10, and they kind of bring, you know, dad up to speed. And uh, they're like, but it's not that big of a deal. They kept Simeon. All we have to do is go back to Egypt with Benjamin. And at that point, Jacob's like, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can stop right there. You're not taking Benjamin. 
I already lost Joseph. He was my favorite son. Now Benjamin is my favorite son. This is a great dad, by the way. Isn't it right? And if something were to happen to Benjamin, who's now my favorite son, I would die. And one of them speaks up and says, yeah, dad, but what about Simeon? And Jacob's like, you know, well, things happen. You know, life is tough, right? Get over it. But you're not taking Benjamin. So they leave Simeon in jail back in Egypt. They just go about their business with life. The famine gets worse. Eventually they run out of grain. And so Jacob, he calls the boys in one day and he says, you've got to go back to Egypt. You've got to get some grain or we're going to starve to death. And they're like, we are not going back without Benjamin. Because if we go back before that old mean prime minister without Benjamin, dad, you're never going to see us again. So Jacob says, fine, I'll just starve to death. But you're not taking Benjamin back to Egypt. More time goes by. The famine gets worse. So one day the boys approach dad and say, dad, we've got to take Benjamin. We've got to go back to Egypt. Jacob's like, no, it's not going to happen. So Judah, one of the brothers, steps up and says, listen, dad, we've got to buy grain. We are literally starving to death. And we cannot go back to Egypt without Benjamin. And Judah says, Dad, this is the day. I swear on my own life that if you will let us take Benjamin to Egypt so we can get Simeon back, so we can get grain, I promise you, I promise you, if you will let us take him, you have my word, he will return home alive. And finally, Jacob reluctantly gives in. And the boys head back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. And when they arrive, Joseph sees Benjamin. And when he sees him, he just breaks down. And he, it's just like he can't contain the emotion anymore. I don't know why. Maybe because of all of the accumulated pain. Maybe the turmoil of his life. Maybe all of the bad memories. But it's just too much. Have you ever had one of those situations in your lives where it is just too much? You don't even see it coming in, but all of a sudden there's all this pent-up emotion and something happens, something is said, you see someone and, and it just comes out. That's what's going on with Jacob. We've all been there. And part, you know, there's, there's a part of us that wants to take our past and, and all of our bad memories and all of our abusive situations, we just want to put it behind us and we want to shut the door on it and we want to just move forward with our life. But then, you know, there's a part of us, if we're honest, we want somebody to pay. Joseph has a decision to make. So he has all of his brothers brought to his home for a meal. They have no idea what's going on. And he sits them down around the table in birth order. And they are freaking out. They're like, how in the world does he know all this, right? Finally, he says, listen, I'm convinced you're not spies. I'm going to sell you some grain. And so you get to chapter 44, verse 1. Now, Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Joseph always was giving them their money back, right? Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack. Benjamin's, right? along with the silver for the grain. And the brothers, they get the sacks, they load them up on their donkeys, they head home thinking, woo, got, got Benjamin, got Simeon, glad that's over. And Joseph waits a little while until they get a few miles out of town and he sends a SWAT team after him, right? And they surround him, they say, hey, you're under arrest for stealing the prime minister's silver goblet. And they're so sure of their innocence, one of them blurts out in verse nine, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. Uh-oh, bad move, right? So they throw him in the back of the paddy wagon. They take him back to see Joseph. They rip open the bags, and there is the silver goblet right in Benjamin's bag. And they're thinking, we are toast. 
it's over. And they had this conversation in Hebrew in front of Joseph. They, they don't think that Joseph knows what they're talking about. And they're like, wow, God is doing this to us because of what we did to our brother. And Joseph, he hears the whole thing. Finally, Judah speaks up and he says, listen, listen, prime minister, I swore on my life that if my dad would allow us to bring Benjamin, as you requested, I promised my dad that I would get him home alive. And if I don't show up with him, it is going to kill my dad. And Judah says, so just keep me as your slave. Please, please let Benjamin go home with my brothers. And again, Joseph is overcome with emotion, and he runs out of the room, and he breaks down. And this time, it is so loud. All the Egyptians hear Joseph, and they hear him crying and wailing, and they're like, what is wrong with Joseph? Is he having a breakdown? What's going on? Finally, Joseph, he gains his composure. He comes back into the room. He says, everybody out. Everybody leave except these 11 guys. And you come to this epic moment in the story, chapter 45 of Genesis, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And I bet he said it in Hebrew. And then he asked them, is my father still living? I love this. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Maybe one of the great understatements in the Bible, right? I mean, they are stunned. They are speechless. They are petrified. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Now, I can tell you what they were thinking. No, thanks. We're fine. We're fine right here, right? But he persuades them. And I, and I, and I think this. Remember, he emptied the room out. It's just Joseph and his 11 brothers. And uh, if you brought your kids into big church, that's your fault. You should have had them in Kid City. But uh, this will make for some good conversation on the way home. I think he was going to show his brothers that he was circumcised. Because nobody was circumcised at this time in history except the Hebrew people. And then it says, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And they can't believe it. I mean, they're looking into the face of a 40-year-old, unshaven man. A Hebrew wouldn't look that way. Last time they saw him, he was a 17-year-old kid. Now he's the prime minister of Egypt. He has what they need, and their lives are in his hand. Now, here's my question for you. What do you do in that situation? When what goes around comes around. Look what Joseph did. Joseph says in verse 5, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Look at this phrase. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And they're thinking, no, 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 Joseph, you must have forgotten. God didn't send you here. We sent you here. And Joseph's like, nope, God sent me here. And they're like, but that can't be. See, God doesn't allow that kind of bad stuff to happen to good people. And Joseph, you're a good person. God wouldn't allow that to happen. Joseph's like, sure, he allows it to happen. I mean, God was with me when I lived very comfortably at home with Dad. God was with me on that day when you threw me in that pit and framed my death and sold me into slavery. God was with me in Potiphar's household when I was falsely accused. God was with me every day for two years in that nasty dungeon. God was with me when I went in to see Pharaoh and I was able to interpret his dream. God was with me when I saved the entire nation. In fact, the reason we're standing here and we're having this conversation is because God did all of this. 
So brothers, you don't need to be afraid because I see this differently than you do. You see this all from a human perspective. I see it from a divine perspective. God sent me here 23 years ago so that I could save lives, including yours, verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, I want you to just really listen to me because this is, this is so important in this story. There's incredible power that comes from seeing God walking with you in circumstances that you would have never imagined that God would have allowed you to walk through. Let me say that again. There is incredible power that comes from seeing God walking with you in circumstances, painful circumstances, horrendous circumstances that you never ever dreamed God would even allow you to walk through. I had a wedding Friday night, and uh, it was it was cool because there were some you know there were some of our better friends were there and uh, that we know uh, from the church, and they set us at a table together. And it's interesting because, you know, on the surface, we kind of look like we all have it together. You know, empty nesters, life is good, they're gone. Hopefully they won't come back. And, uh, oh, by the way, they will. But, um, but it's interesting, as we're talking around the table, what we discover is everybody has mess in their life. Now, we can cover it up. And we can come to a big church like Hope, and we can remain rather anonymous and we can put stickers on the back of our car about how proud we are of our children, but we know they still wet the bed and they're in high school. And you know, and I mean, but we just kind of cover it all up. We're not really that proud of them. We want everybody to think we're that proud of them, right? And marriage is great, finances are great, we got the world by the tail, right? But as we begin to share, just kind of catching up, what we discovered was this each one of us is going through some incredibly deep, dark stuff right now. And as we were talking about it, I was sharing, you know, I'm kind of talking about this this weekend. I was kind of giving them an overview of my message. That way they don't have to come this weekend. And, uh, and I, made, I made this comment. I said, yeah, you know what? What's hard is often in those times, God is very, very silent. You want to do a great study in the Bible? Do a study of the times that God is silent. You'll just see, and, and God was silent for 40 years. God was silent. I mean, between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, God was silent for 400 years. And I told him, I said, during those times, have you guys learned, God is so silent, but he's never absent. He may be silent, but he's not absent. And I've been around long enough to look back and see that God just has an uncanny way of leveraging the worst things in our life for the best of what, now here's the key part, the best of what he wants to happen. It says in verse 9, Joseph says, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. Look what he says. I will provide for you there. And why would Joseph do that? Well, see, that's how you respond. That's how you respond if you have absolute confidence and trust in God. That's how you respond if you have absolute confidence and trust that God is actually in control of your life and everything that is happening to you, God has ordained and he is right there every step of the way with you. Time passes, years later, brothers are still freaking out. 
Because in the back of their mind, they're like, yeah, he's only being nice to us because dad's still alive. How's he going to treat us when dad dies? Yeah, that's the real test. Finally, the day comes, Jacob dies. Let me just pick it up, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, "Uh, your father left these instructions before he died. Dad's dying wish, right? This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins, the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. In other words, dad would want you to forgive us, Joseph. He really would, right? Now this is interesting. It says, when the message came to him, Joseph wept. You know what he's thinking? After all this time, they still don't get it. He wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. And as many times as, I, as I've talked through this, as many times as I've read the story of Joseph, I have never noticed this phrase. Look at it. Am I in the place of God? In other words, why are you afraid of me? Am I God? Is it my job to get even? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Joseph, that's not my job to get even. It's not my job to seek justice. It's not my job to make sure you pay me what you owe me for all the hurt. That's that's God's problem, and I'm, I'm not God. You intended to harm me. I love what the New American Standard, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Listen, this is huge. You will never experience all the good that can come from the bad in your life until you're first willing to acknowledge that God was right there with you in the bad. And then you refuse to play God when things are good. Joseph said, I'm not going to play God. You will never experience everything that God is trying to teach you on the road of life that he's taking you on until you can see that God was right there with you in the bad. And then when things go full circle and things are good, you resist the urge to play God. Let me just say this about Joseph. He didn't just stick his head in the sand and pretend it never happened. He wasn't living in denial. I mean, he said, hey, guys, brother, let's not kid ourselves. You meant it for evil. There is nothing remotely good about what you did to me but but God. See, that's a but God. And this is so cool because Joseph, he allows his theology to eclipse his emotions and his bad memories. See, that's part of our problem as Christians. We run on our feelings. We run on our emotions where we need to be focused on our theology. Who is God? What is the character of God? And this is a situation where David said, I'm going to take theology. I'm going to take my understanding of the character of God. I'm going to put it over all that has happened. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So we're not going to go there anymore. The door is closed. That's behind us. I don't want you to ever bring it up again. He acknowledged that God was with him in the bad. And when things were good and he had the chance to get even, to even the score, to take matters into his own hand, he refused to play God. Just a couple of applications, maybe not just from this message, but from this whole series that just kind of bubble 
to the top as we wrap it up. Here's the first one. You may not be able to see it right now, but God really does work things out for our good in our lives. We don't always like that. I remember when I was my freshman year of college, I was playing in a soccer game and, and destroyed my left knee in the end of November, had to drop out of school that semester, had my knee rebuilt. And it was just a downtime. I mean, that's not the way you want to start off your college education. And I remember my mom on a regular basis. Back then, we didn't have email and text. We had this thing called mail. And people brought it to your door. It's really weird. Um, think back on it. But my mom would send me a letter two or three weeks, and she would always have Romans 8:28. All things work together for good. All things work. And I got so sick of that. I got so sick of that. Because I don't see it right now. God really does work things out for our good in our lives. I mean, you look back on Joseph's life, you read the story on your own, you realize that nothing that happened to him was insignificant. Nothing that happened to him was wasted. Just like nothing in our lives is insignificant and nothing in our lives is wasted as long as we're living under, here's the key, under the sovereign hand of God. He does not waste hard times. He does not waste tough times in our life. And I think that Joseph somehow came to terms early on in his life with this principle. It's the only way that you can explain how he endured everything that he endured. And yet he came out the other end the way he did. I'm telling you from experience, remembering that God is in control of our lives works wonders when the bottom drops out. And when there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes you have to allow your theology to eclipse your emotion and be willing to say, God, I don't get it, but I know you're working for my good. You'll never get there until you can acknowledge that God is with you in the bad. Here's a second. Growing old without growing bitter is the best way to live. It's the best way to live life. You know, you ever been around somebody that was angry, old, cranky, crotchety, you know? Laura would raise her hand, yes. My husband, you know, you know. Well, if you've been around somebody, you know what I'm talking about. Just kind of caught up and consumed with their bitterness. They're, you know, they're a victim of life. They're a victim of their circumstances. You may have somebody in your life like that right now. You have coffee with them. Like, oh, my gosh, you're just sucking the life out of me. I mean, every, every time you're around them, you have somebody like that. Some of you are smiling. I know you do, right? By the way, maybe it's you. <laughs> While we're all talking about it. Are you that person? I mean, bitter, you know, victim. I'm just, oh, you know, I know. Can I ask you a question? I mean, do you really want to live life that way? It can't be fun. Bigger question, you want to die that way? Is, is, that, is that really the way you want to be remembered? And I, I know right now some of you are so ticked off. You know, I'm going to send him an email. And I'm going to get an appointment, and I'm going to tell him my story. Because he knew my story. Oh, you'd say, oh, you're right. You're the exception. You get to sit over here and be bitter all you want. You are truly a victim, right? I'm telling you, the most courageous thing you will ever do in your life is forgive the person who's hurt you the most. The most courageous thing you'll ever do. Listen, forgiveness is not for weak people. Weak people don't forgive. Forgiveness is for the person who has gained the perspective that God is in the situation. And yeah, that person meant it to, for evil, but God meant it for good. It takes extraordinary strength to live that way. It takes extraordinary strength not to want to pay people back to get your pound of flesh, what you feel they owe you. It takes extraordinary strength not to give people what you think they deserve. 
especially when you're in a position to get even. But that's what people do. And that's how people live when they have absolute confidence and trust in God. And that's how you can live your life without being a victim. Yeah, they meant it for evil, but now I see that God was in it. And God meant it for good. And I don't see the good yet. But I'm going to allow my theology to eclipse my emotions. And I'm going to trust God on this one. Let's pray. Just before I pray, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. And I don't, I don't know all the experiences of your life. But in some sense, we're all victims. All of us have been mistreated unfairly from, by someone in our past. At the end of the day, I guess the question is, does it define you? Are you so shackled to the events in your past that it's impossible for you to move freely into the future? Because right now, you're chained to those events. You're chained to those memories, and you, you drag them into every relationship. You drag them into every new opportunity, every social setting, every career move. And last week we saw that Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. But you can't experience the abundant life because you're still chained to the past. And the only way I know the, to break free of that chain is to cancel the debt. See, you have the sense they took something from me and they owe me. Well, let me tell you from someone who spent a couple of years being really, really bitter about a situation. At the end of the day, there's absolutely nothing they can do to repay the debt. Forgiveness is not for them. And I know what you're thinking, oh, if I just forgive them, I'm letting them off the hook. It's not for them. Forgiveness is for you. So you can move forward. And you can get on to the life that God called you to. But for you to get there, you're going to have to have absolute confidence and trust in God. Father, we, we love you. Nothing escapes your notice. You know every little detail, every little event, every little activity that is going on in our lives. And Father, there are times that when we go through those painful dark times, you seem absent. You're not absent. Sometimes you're just silent because you're at work. You're doing your thing. You're preparing us for something. And one day we may see it, one day we may not see it. We may never understand it until we get to heaven with you. But Father, the way we survive those times, the way you want us to survive those times, is to acknowledge, God, I know you were with me in the bad. And I'm going to give up the bitterness and the opportunity to get even because now maybe things are good. Father, I pray for those right now who are just weighed down by the past. Set them free. In your name we pray, amen.